1: WBEZ Chicago. This is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, we'll take a look at all the novels coming out that are about the pandemic.
2: You know, do we want to sort of immerse ourselves in this reality that many of us would like to not be part of right now? But if you ignore it, is that, you know, sort of jarringly out of touch?
1: Plus, what the U.S. women's soccer lawsuit settlement means for equal pay more broadly.
3: You know, and it's about making sure that women in the workforce are participating and are not just leaving the workforce as we've seen so much over the past two years and have the opportunity to be paid
1: equally. But first, let's take a look at the week that was. With us today, we have Doreen St. Felix, a TV critic for The New Yorker. Doreen, hello. Hi, Greta. We also have Shirley Lee, who covers culture for The Atlantic. Shirley, welcome back. Hello. Thank you for having me back. So I want to start with uh, scams because you both write and think a lot about TV, especially. And one thing that I've noticed, especially recently, is like all of these fictionalized shows about scammers. I'm thinking about Inventing Anna, which came out on Netflix a couple weeks ago. Next week, there's the Hulu show about Elizabeth Holmes coming out. It's called The Dropout. There's also one about WeWork coming out next month on Apple TV. I get that a lot of this is probably just a matter of timing, right? Like, if you're going to do, like, the scripted version of the article that came out several years ago, that takes a lot of time in terms of, you know, script writing and casting and production and all that good stuff. But it still seems kind of uncanny to me that they're all coming out at the
4: same time. What do you think, Doreen? Does that strike you, too? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think the scammer has long been a fixation of American culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course it always, it's really tempting to see a kind of serendipity because the fans that they attract are often people who are involved with like, you know, the digital media space. So it can feel like, you know, we're experiencing a surplus of them. Um, so I don't know if there's like a real structure that we can point to besides um, the general narratives that have been projected onto the millennial generation as being the generation that you know can't seem to make it in ways that Mm -hmm. are ethical and some of our saints and our stooges are people who have decided to completely circumvent the systems of you know meritocracy that we'd like to pretend are real in this country
1: Interesting. I think that's fascinating. And it's a thread that I definitely want to follow. But first, Shirley, did you watch Inventing Anna? You did, right? I
5: did watch Inventing Anna and I have had her accent stuck in my head for a very long time. <laughs> oh, my condolences. <laughs> yeah. I want you to know that's not me at all. I'm not some party girl. It's unpleasant. <laughs> it's so intense. Are you planning on watching the other ones? Yeah, I am. I've actually uh, been watching some of the screeners for the other ones. Uh, like Doreen said, I mean, yeah, we we have a fixation on stories about scammers. And I think recently there have just been a lot of, uh, there's been a push toward making shows that are capitalizing on recent headlines, right? It feels like, mm-hmm. it does feel like kind of the new IP if you can't make a a show about a recognizable comic book character make it about something that trended for a while you know like (laughs) if if everyone's watching Tiger King let's make Joe versus Carol Uh, but anyway I'm getting off topic yes I've been watching Inventing Anna as well as the others
1: (laughs) no I mean I don't know I don't think that's very off topic at all I mean like Doreen to your point I don't know you tweeted about Inventing Anna too and I think this is along the lines of what you were saying like
4: Mm -hmm.
1: one thing that you said is that you felt like it failed to acknowledge the culture that created it which I just thought was fascinating. Can you, I mean, can you talk a little
4: more about that idea? I kept thinking as I watched the show, which is just so bloated, every episode is a feature <laughs> length. I, mm-hmm. But because the show has decided to, to, to tell the perspective from the journalist's character, we end up not actually really getting to see Anna in the midst of her scams because it's all retrospective. It's all told through like witnesses, so, yeah, for being adapted from an incredibly colorful article felt weirdly stayed. And, and antiseptic.
1: Well, and your point about the length mm-hmm. is super real. I mean, I haven't even I, I I'm like tried to finish it last night before this <laughs> conversation. And at one point, I po- I'm i in the last episode. And I paused just to be like, how much more? And it was still like 55 minutes. <laughs> <I was> like,
4: <laughs> what is happening? right now? <laughs> oh, my God, I know. So I was actually I watched it when I was getting my hair done. And I'm I'm a black woman and I get really, really tiny braids and it usually takes like seven to eight hours. So usually my beautician and I, we go through like two series, but we, we had only gone through like three and a half episodes of Avenging Anna and we were done. And I was like, okay, there's a, there's a problem. Here. <laughs>
1: What did you think, Shirley? I mean, you're like, I loved the casting. In a lot of ways, it is kind of the perfect flavor. Like, I love those Shonda, like, Mm -hmm. you know, like super salacious, like kind of trashy. It's just like junk food for me. And, you know, especially these days, (laughs) I think there is something about that flavor that just like goes down real easy, you know?
5: I had high expectations for this show because it was Shonda and because, like you mentioned, Brett, it has a great cast and, and and scammer stories are kind of built for like like these are meaty parts for good actors to sink their teeth into. Right. Like they're portraying, you know, someone whose psychology a lot of us can't quite um indulge in ourselves you know like scam mm. stories they're are fantasies you oh my gosh this person they really faked it until they made it or mm-hmm. almost made it you, you're defeating the imposter syndrome mm-hmm. and then this is not a joke I came up with I think I saw it in a tweet which is where I see so many things and <laughs> someone said so inventing Anna is like spotlight for dumb people and I was like <laughs> <"No."> <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised someone would walk away with that.
1: Yeah. So, Shirley, do you, th- are like, are we monsters for enjoying stories like this? <laughs> you know, I mean, because, like, you know, these crimes don't not have victims, right? Mm-hmm. But there is something, I, I don't know, I'm conflicted about it, obviously.
5: <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, here's the thing. I think, I, well, I was saying this a little bit earlier, there is something immensely enjoyable about, Scammer stories as fantasies, right? Well, look, mm-hmm. I'm just speaking for myself. I do not have the bravery to go around telling people that my card will work if you just run it another time, oh and I will God. just scream at you yeah. a little bit more.
1: I have um, never seen a sixty thousand dollars credit card limit. But yeah. that's <laughs> another story.
5: <laughs> right, right there, you go. Um, so the thing is, when when these like rips from the headlines stories get turned into into shows, is it exploitative? Yes. Does that mean we can't enjoy them? No. I, I I think if they're done well and they are, uh, and, and there's a reason for telling the story, I think mm-hmm. I'm on board with it. And with this show, after watching the, uh, what was it? Nine episodes. So in total, it was about mm-hmm. a thousand hours. <laughs> I, <laughs> by the end of it, I was like, wait, so your point about Anna was,
1: what? Yes. Yeah. Right. That that right. like 10,000 foot view was really missing. Like, what is the, why do we care about
4: this? You know, Doreen, what do you think? I totally agree with you guys that um, because inventing Anna is so like wishy-washy when it comes to making a statement, I don't even think there's enough entertainment to make you feel like monstrous and enjoying Ooh. a <laughs> show like this. You know what I mean? Like the yeah. viewer isn't like implicated at all. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: You're, you're right. And you should say it. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Cause that like lets me off the hook and I'm cool with that. <laughs> so another thing we're talking about later on in the show is about how the pandemic is showing up in more and more novels lately. And, Obviously, it's become a pretty big plot point in a number of TV shows, especially. I don't know about movies yet, but I think about with TV, especially like the morning show went hard on it. Um, I was just curious, like if y'all have a favorite thing that has come out that has nodded to COVID in a way that you found effective or interesting.
4: Doreen, what do you think? Interesting. Well, I think there's a tier of culture that gets ignored which is to say the like network procedural oh for sure they really were the first you know like law and order svu had (laughs) i mean it was really really um poorly done But, but yeah as early as you know mid 2020 um they were introducing characters who would wear masks and that was the thing right they would just like be wearing a mask in one scene and then not wearing a mask in another scene and there was no comment Mm -hmm. and so there was a tentative interest in reflecting what reality looked like at the time and so I just want to give a nod to these network shows who did an Mm -hmm. awful job but were willing to (laughs) I respect um, that (laughs) to address it but lately, I've been feeling um, maturation and sophistication um, in some shows and films, actually. I just watched Kimmy, the new Soderbergh, mm. and that's a pandemic movie. Oh, no kidding. I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't want to give away too much, but it's kind of like a a technologist riff on Rear Window. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's Soderbergh doing Hitchcock. I saw the trailer. It looks wild. Yeah. I mean, it's not perfect, but... From what I've seen, that was the most compelling because it wasn't just trying to like make a gesture or a nod. It was like Mm -hmm. fully basing its premise on our reality.
1: Yeah, I feel like it's such a tricky middle ground between like acknowledging it, but, and I, you know, I, I don't know, like I was so glad that Insecure just didn't even go there, you know? Was yeah. Like, okay, great. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just live in this beautiful Southern California and Bay Area a little bit, I guess, in this last season. And like, <laughs> pretend like nothing is wrong, at least in terms of a global pandemic. And we can just like, enjoy these other dramas and go for it, you know?
4: There was one little moment though in the premiere where I don't remember oh, whose right. character it, it was, like, but they're you know on their way to the college reunion, and someone says something like, "After everything that went down these past two years, it's just like."
2: Well, look, this has been so inspiring, especially with everything going on in the world right now. Am I right? I am
0: right.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I'll take it. <laughs> It's going to be such a fascinating relic eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, Shirley, what do you think? Do you have any, is there anything that you think has like handled the pandemic particularly well, given our weird in-between state with it? Gosh, I I, I struggle with this question. I think if I have to
5: choose something that's been a good product of the pandemic and is also sort of about the pandemic is that there's this podcast. um, I know it's not a book or a movie or a show, so I'm sorry it's content. We'll take it. (laughs) There's, there's a podcast called this is dating that I've been listening to. I don't know if you've heard of it. Mm Um, it's, uh, it's well, it's kind of about pandemic dating, but not really. There's a behavioral psychologist who advises a single person and then finds a match and gets them to go on a date over zoom. Hmm. Um, and it's, Uh, It's the product of a couple of folks who... We're looking for a hobby during the pandemic. They landed on this idea. They put together wow. this podcast, set people up on dates over Zoom. <laughs> it can be kind of awkward when you're listening to people on first dates, but it's also kind of illuminating. <laughs> yeah, this is this was a tough question, Greta. I have not loved a lot of oh, no. <laughs> media about the pandemic. It's so complicated because yeah, yeah, I think
1: yeah. and you kind of hinted at this too, Doreen, like I don't want it to exist, but I also feel such cognitive dissonance when it doesn't exist, like when someone mm-hmm. walks into a crowded bar or whatever you know like it's so hard to figure out that middle ground but i'd rather pretend like it doesn't exist than have like weird like i had such a hard time with that episode of love life oh you did i did i turned it (laughs) off i was like i might not watch this show anymore (laughs) wow i i loved that episode. did you funny yeah the jokes (laughs) about the girlfriend touching stuff it was just like this is too (laughs)
4: <laughs> I, I, it. <laughs> I had that period piece vibe remember when we were all like bleaching bananas and then yes them yes the <laughs> I wasn't
1: ready I wasn't ready
4: <laughs> I was really convinced like in the episode of love life the first line of the narration is like they're at a new year's eve party and he's like
0: if marcus was sure of anything
1: he was sure of this 2020 was going to be his year <laughs> Okay, well, we already have our homework to go watch Kimmy. Yes, that's true. I'm the yes. teacher. <laughs> <laughs> this has been so much fun, you two. Thank you so much for doing it. Shirley, Dream. you all are the best. Thank
4: you. Yeah, it was so great to hang out with y'all.
1: Something that has come up a lot during the pandemic, even here on Nerdette, is the idea of the pandemic plot. How do creators make stuff these days that feels emotionally relevant? Do we lean into quarantine or pretend nothing happened? Alexandra Alter recently wrote about this phenomenon in the publishing world, which she reports on for The New York Times. Her article is called The Problem with the Pandemic Plot. Alexandra, hi. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So you mentioned several well-known, like, generally acclaimed authors like Isabel Allende, Gary Steingart, Anne Tyler, Roddy Doyle. All of them have new books out and all touch on the pandemic.
2: The first big question I had is, Who, you know, do we want to sort of immerse ourselves in this reality that many of us would like to not be part of right, right. now? Yeah. Um, but if you ignore it, is that, you know, sort of jarringly... Out of touch, um, because for a lot of writers they feel like they're capturing the moment that we' we're, that we're living in, so it was really, really interesting to talk to you know people like Ian McEwan and Rebecca Mackay, who's Book is coming out next year and it sounds amazing. um, And I'm really excited, but she wasn't planning on including the pandemic at all. She was setting it in 2022, thinking like it's going to be all over. And then very grudgingly had to go in and add a bunch of face masks on her character, she told me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I think, you know, one question that came up in talking to both writers and literary critics was, Um, what is the appetite going to be for uh, fiction that deals with a pandemic that sort of captures the experience of what it was like to live in the pandemic? Um, And that's an open question still, because a lot of these books are just starting to come out. But I do think, you know, it'll be fascinating to see kind of how literary novelists process this, you know, really intense and traumatic period of time, because some of them say, even if they don't particularly want to relive the experience of the pandemic in their fiction, but they feel almost obligated because, that's sort of this unique thing that fiction can provide more than nonfiction. It sort of like helps hmm. us, um, helps reflect kind of what it felt like, what, you know, the emotional cadences were like um, more so than most other mediums, I would say.
1: Yeah. It's such a fascinating quandary, I guess. Like there's a quote you have in your article from Sigrid Nunes, who says, if it's set now, it has to be part of this story referring to the pandemic. I don't know though. Like I found several books where, the pandemic was just sort of wedged in in like the last seven eighths of the book and was just sort of like obliquely referred to as like oh he's an introvert anyway so he really liked staying at home or whatever And <laughs> right. like
2: yeah it's sally rooney i think had one line yes in her that's novel. what exactly
1: yeah. what i'm thinking of and i read i read that one and then the new leanne moriarty and the new anthony doer like all in a row and oh. each of them had like a sentence you know, and it seemed to me like they had written the majority of the book before the pandemic, which is like yes. totally fair, you know, and like they felt like they needed to nod to it or their editors did or whatever. So there was just like this one sentence, and that really got to me. I think because to me, it's like the pandemic isn't just a cute sentence, like the pandemic changes the entire plot. And if yes. it doesn't, that feels like a huge disservice to me, given what I've gone through over the last two yeah, years, you know? I think
2: that's a very interesting point because you've invested emotionally in this novel, right? I'm, I think Rachel Cuss does this too. She kind of alludes to the pandemic in um, second place. Uh, and then to be jarringly brought out of it, but in an unsatisfying way is is right. tricky. Um, I think a good example of somebody revising uh, their novel in a way that really took um, the the pandemic seriously, but didn't change the point of the book was, um, I don't know if you got a chance to read Joan is okay by Wiki Wang. Yes. I thought that one worked. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that I felt like acknowledged the gravity uh, and intensity of the pandemic. Um, but it wasn't the point of the plot. So I think that is the fine line that writers are walking, or you go the Gary Steingart wrote and you write a pandemic novel. That's, you know, um, Our Country Friends is very clearly a pandemic novel. There's the, you know, there's other things going on in it, but the whole point, you know, the thing that sets the plot in motion is is friends quarantining together upstate to escape New York City and the guilt that they feel about that.
1: Yeah, it's just so fascinating. I mean, I think another one, which arguably maybe is more genre is uh, Emily St. John Mandel's new book, Sea of Tranquility, which isn't. Like literally our pandemic, but feels close enough that like it it hits. That
2: know? hits hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I sort of I don't know if this was a great call, but I binged all of Station Eleven the show, <laughs> reread Station Eleven the novel, and then read her new novel. And so I was just sort of like marinating in yeah. Emily okay, San- St. John Mandel and the pandemic. Um, but what I I think that's a great example because it is sci-fi and it's time travel and it's a future pandemic, which is sort of depressing to contemplate but she is writing about the experience of being a a novelist who wrote a pandemic novel as she did and then a pandemic occurs and so there are these scenes set in the future where you know her main character is trying to do these virtual book tours because um, she's in a colony on Mars and is on lockdown because of the pandemic. And meanwhile, her toddler daughter is driving her crazy and she has to parent and teach and she and her husband are sort of tag teaming. And that was a hundred percent, you know, you could tell. And I asked Emily about this drawn from her current pandemic experience. So, sure. yeah, I do think, um, you know, I feel like there's an entire separate article to do about science fiction and in, in this pandemic No
1: kidding. So I, like, in general, I don't know. I guess I haven't read one that's entirely about the pandemic that is, like, literary fiction. I'm not sure I'm up for it at this juncture. Um, And it's funny thinking about even TV, like... I, you know, like, I am I mean, Station Eleven hit pretty hard, too. But, like, even Love Life, there was, like, one episode of that, HBO of season two of that, that where they were wearing masks. And I was just like, I can't do mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was one piece of pandemic art that did really work for me. And I was curious to ask you, like, is there something, maybe not even that you've read, maybe that you've watched, that you think really did... I don't know, help provide you with extra meaning or help you process or sufficiently distract you, but that was still like, obviously a product of these times.
2: That's a great question. Um, As far as like all the books that I've read, I really did love Our Country Friends by Gary Steingart and I found to be very moving. I think the humor, you know, helped you get through the darker moments, but um, I liked how direct he was about the pain that this has caused and the cost to people, but also the way it's brought people together. It's brought mm-hmm. friends, you know, certain friends and family members together, even as other people have been separated. So to me, it felt like it uh, sort of reflected a lot of the things I went through, even though the you know the characters are very different from me. Um, but there, I, I will say, I wouldn't recommend doing what I did for the article, which is reading a bunch of these books in a row. <laughs> um, it's sort of a job hazard for me. Like I did an article a few years ago about feminist dystopian oh, fiction. God, for sure. Um, yeah. And that <laughs> was also like, I love a dystopian yeah. novel more than anything, but like you want to kind of Sprinkle them, you, you know, throughout your your year. <laughs> yeah, you have to mix it up. so I need some sort of I think trend story about rom coms yes. or something. Um, but yeah, I do think you know in in sort of measure and you know if you measure these out and and sort of read them when you're in the right you know sort of headspace, they are um, interesting and helpful in many ways. Um, I'm curious though, what um you were saying that you found some art that really worked. Yeah. Um, can you say a little more about that? Because I'd love to check it out. I
1: would love to. So it's a movie, it's called Language Lessons, and it's with Mark DuPlace and Natalie Morales. But it's just the two of them and it's filmed like FaceTime style. And so it's obviously a product of like lockdown times. Yeah. Um, oh, interesting. But it's not at all. Is about it mumblecore? The <laughs> No, it's not Mumblecore, Though okay. I do think a fair amount of it is improvised. Interesting. And it's the pandemic isn't mentioned at all. They just happen to be long distance. They're doing. She he's getting Spanish lessons, and oh, that's they're a good both setup. yes.
4: So I have to speak Spanish for one day. Well, oh. what? Um, he actually he actually bought the uh, the the hundred lesson package. So it it's today, and then. Also, uh, 99
2: more weeks. Are you? Wow, that is, that's extreme. Will? Yeah?
4: Did you buy me a hundred Spanish lessons? Yeah. Why? Because you
2: wanted to learn Spanish, dummy.
4: (laughs)
1: And they're both going through really tumultuous, intense things in their lives and so it's about grief and isolation and connection. And so, you know, it like addresses all of these things that mm-hmm. I'm wrestling with as a person living in the pandemic, but it's not about the pandemic at all. And I found that to be so satisfying and comforting, you know? Yeah.
2: I do think we'll see a lot of that in fiction too, you know, taking the kind of emotional texture of the time and the psychological you know repercussions of this time and processing them into a story without making it a pandemic story yeah Um,
1: like i think that's that's what my heart really needs you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i'm sure there'll be some i'll let you know (laughs) (laughs) yes cool we'll be in touch i love it well alexandra thank you so much for talking with me this was such a pleasure
2: it was really fun to join you thanks so much
1: in just a minute a segment all about soccer and equal pay So, back in 2019, members of the U.S. women's national soccer team sued the U.S. Soccer Federation over unfair pay practices. The short version is members of the Dudes U.S. soccer team were making a lot more money than the ladies. This week, the Soccer Federation and the women's team reached a $24 million settlement. Soccer star Megan Rapino told the NBC's Today Show that it's a huge win.
2: As always, there's really no justice going backwards. Um, the only justice really now is ensuring that this never happens again. And this lawsuit is a massive step forward.
1: Emma Hinchliff is an editor at Fortune magazine. She also writes their broadsheet newsletter about women and power. She sees the lawsuit's ripple effects reaching far beyond the soccer world.
3: Some of the soccer stars that we know and love, Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan, have been putting so much of their time and effort over the past several years into fighting for equal pay. They've become, you know, avatars for this issue in society, and they have taken on this responsibility to fight for themselves and for others in sports and beyond.
1: As I mentioned, the players originally sued U.S. soccer in 2019. It was the lead-up to the 2019 World Cup, which, in case you don't remember, they extremely won.
3: They argued that they were not just paid unfairly for equal work, But, you know, in fact, for better work, the U.S. women's national team (laughs) was more successful, had won more championships and had overall um, been a more successful team over the time period that was in question in this lawsuit. I mean, if you'll remember the um, when the women's soccer team won that championship in 2019, there were fans chanting equal pay in the stadium. Like, you know, when was the (laughs) last time that you would have heard sports fans chanting
1: about an issue like equal pay while they're at a game? The move was unprecedented and more teams followed their lead.
3: Since the uh, U.S. women's soccer team filed this lawsuit, we've seen fights for equal pay in Canadian women's soccer among U.S. Olympic ice hockey players, and in the WNBA, which has a lot of ties to U.S. soccer, where the Players Union is fighting for better wages, better working conditions, similarly to how the women's soccer team was fighting not just for financial compensation, but for better working conditions and equal treatment as to the men.
1: According to Pew, women ages 25 and up earned about 80 cents on the dollar compared with men with similar educational backgrounds in 2021. While technically that is maybe an increase from 79 cents on the dollar, Emma says it's actually not that simple. The gap has shrunk a little, which doesn't necessarily
3: mean progress. It's also a reflection of the number of women in the workforce. And because so many women have left the workforce over the period of the pandemic, that gap has shrunk because fewer women are participating in the labor force and being unfairly compensated as they do
1: so. It's worth noting not all the players who filed the lawsuit in the first place are happy with the settlement. After all, the original ask was for $66 million, not twenty-four. million. But as Emma says, this is an unprecedented move. And as Megan Rapinoe says, it's a massive step forward, both for women's sports and for equal pay across the board. All right. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We were very glad to have you as always. We have a newsletter. I bet you'd like it. There are at least two cute animal links in this week's newsletter. You can sign up for it if you go to wbez.org slash AF. The show is produced by me and Anna Baumann. Our executive producer is Brendan Manazak. We will see you in March.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO.